This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. It's time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, Estonia is a member of NATO and borders Russia. It started sending weapons to Ukraine even before Russia's invasion. It also has some of the most advanced cybersecurity in the world. We'll talk to Estonia's ambassador to the U.S. Then, nearly one year ago, the president issued an executive order to improve customer experience across the federal government. A new report looks at how it's going and the challenges agencies still face. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the show that delivers insights on federal government programs, people, and operations. I'm Mimi Gerges. The relatively small country of Estonia, with a population of 1.3 million people, has provided nearly 300 million in aid to Ukraine. They have also taken in over 60,000 refugees. Christian Preek is Estonia's ambassador to the U.S. Mr. Ambassador, welcome to the program. Thanks for, thanks for having me. So let's start with military support um, to Ukraine. Can you give us an idea of the types of weapons that you've been sending there? Well, the types of weapons that we've uh, given to Ukraine have ranged uh, from uh, personal weapons like, uh, uh, like uh, rifles, like uh, uh, anti-tank weapons, to uh, more significant uh, weapons like uh, uh, howitzers, uh, different classes, certainly a lot of am ammunition, uh, protective gear, uh, winter uh, clothing and so on so uh, so, uh, so on L last week though uh, our government together with uh, Norwegians and Netherlands sent uh, uh, the third uh, military field hospital uh, to Ukraine the two previous ones uh, we've uh, cooperated with uh, with the Germans and this is uh, significant let's talk about the training because you also train ukrainian soldiers there in estonia on some of that equipment how extensive is that it is quite extensive uh, we have to remind the viewers that uh, estonia is a country of uh, 1.3 million so uh, when we talk about uh, n uh, numbers in hundreds and hundreds of uh, of ukrainians uh, being trained and not only trained but also while being trained uh, e equipped and uh, and uh, being sent back to ukraine with this equipment, uh, this is uh, significant. And you mentioned the, the field hospital because there's a lot of non-military aid that you're sending. Can you give us a, an, a bigger idea of what you're sending? Uh, again, uh, there is, let's say, uh, non-lethal military part where uh, we've been focusing heavily on uh, different uh, uh, medical equipment. Uh, again, the, uh, the field hospitals, which are significant, so-called Road 2 hospitals. But th there is also a very significant uh, uh, civilian humanitarian aid uh, part. Just last week, again, uh, our government uh, sent uh, a number of uh, city buses to, uh, to the uh, city of Kharkiv. Uh, we've uh, we've uh, sent uh, city buses also to other, other regions because we, we believe very uh, strongly that these people who have been not just affected but uh, devastated uh, by, by this uh, uh, horrible aggression, they need to see at least glimmer of normalcy, glimmer of hope uh, on the horizon even while the, uh, while the war is ongoing rather than waiting until the, the victory and, uh, and uh, only then uh, seeing, uh, uh, let's say, non-civilian aid coming in. 
or non-military non aid uh, coming in rather. How much is Estonia currently spending on defense as a, uh, as a portion uh, compared to the GDP? Yeah. Estonia uh, for many years has been uh, among the front runners in NATO when it comes to uh, uh, military spending uh, uh, as a ratio to, uh, to GDP. We very strongly believe that, uh, that uh, in order to uh, be part of a, a collective defense alliance, we uh, uh, have to start from our own uh, d defense. So we've been pushing uh, at 2% uh, level or beyond uh, for many years. This year uh, we are uh, approximately at the 2.85% uh, of GDP and actually uh, we are moving towards uh, 3% and even beyond uh, in, in, in the coming years. So there are plans to increase that even further? Uh, exactly, and, and we are talking about uh, not just mundane uh, uh, items or things, but we are talking about uh, major weapon pro programs. Just last uh, Friday, uh, uh, Estonia signed a, a major uh, uh, defense contract with, with the US to develop the uh, long-range uh, artillery uh, uh, program uh, based on uh, US HIMARS systems. Estonia does not border Ukraine, but it, it does um, take in over 60,000 refugees at this point. Ukrainian refugees have come into to, um, to Estonia. Tell us about the services that you're providing and the impact it's had on Estonia. Right. Uh, uh, the uh, refugees that we've received, uh, it's one of the, I would say, the most significant contribution that, uh, uh, contributions that we've given to uh, Ukraine. Uh, as you mentioned, the, uh, the number exceeds 50,000, it's uh, around uh, 60,000 uh, uh, refugees, which, uh, again, to put things into perspective, it's uh, around 5% uh, of our uh, entire population. So uh, 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 to compare again, uh, to draw a comparison with, with the U.S., that would be more than 13, around 14 uh, uh, million uh, people here. Uh, not all states have that, uh, that many peop uh, people. We've provided them uh, with, uh, with the services that uh, uh, Estonians with Estonian uh, citizenship or Estonian uh, resident, uh, residence permit would get uh, uh, normally otherwise. So, uh, uh, for example, the, uh, uh, these refugees are uh, eligible for the uh, universal health care. Uh, we've uh, stepped up our efforts to make sure that all the kids can go to school. Uh, uh, the, we don't have any uh, refugee camps in Estonia, but rather we've been able to, to find uh, uh, the government, uh, the uh, private citizens and, uh, and the uh, municipal uh, governments together have uh, been able to find uh, uh, shelter and homes to all of them. And, uh, and we strongly believe that uh, uh, this is necessary uh, to make sure that th these people don't suffer even more. And Estonia does border Russia. Are you concerned about a direct threat from Russia to Estonia? Yes, we do uh, border, border with Russia, and uh, this is the reason why we have such an extensive uh, uh, long-term experience with, with Russia. This is the reason why we uh, have, unfortunately, have been led to believe that, uh, that uh, Russia uh, is currently showing its, its true colors rather, rather than uh, uh, doing something uh, of, uh, uh, out, out of order, so to say. But uh, uh, when, it, when it comes to uh, Russian military threat, we don't see it uh, as an imminent threat uh, this week or, or, or next month. 
just because uh, 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 the fight in Ukraine has uh, drawn so many of their uh, resources, including from uh, behind our immediate border. However, we do uh, uh, believe, we, we have reason to believe that uh, uh, when it comes to long-term uh, trends, uh, Russia uh, clearly uh, priori prioritizes uh, uh, military power over any other um, uh, domains of power, and, uh, and uh, Russia prioritizes the Western military uh, direction, uh, strategic direction for them, which uh, leads us to be believe that, uh, uh, that uh, uh, they will bounce back, and they will uh, uh, bounce back quicker than many would uh, expect. All right, Ambassador, we're going to take a quick pause here. Stand by and we'll continue. Sure, thank you. Up next, I'll continue my conversation with Estonia's ambassador to the U.S., Christian Preek. Stay with us. I'm back with Christian Preek. He's Estonia's ambassador to the U.S. Mr. Ambassador, I want to ask you about cybersecurity. Um, Estonia has been a victim of Russian cyber attacks. Let's go back to the attacks of 2007. Tell us what happened and how did Estonia respond? In the spring 2007, Estonia was the uh, first state victim of a uh, state-sponsored uh, state and uh, uh, st state cyber attack, let, let's put it that way. We have uh, we had uh, massive uh, so-called uh, DDoS or di distributed uh, denial of service uh, attacks against Estonian uh, uh, both uh, uh, government uh, inf information systems as well as uh, against uh, private uh, companies like uh, media media uh, outlets and and banks, and uh, we did suffer uh, some uh, uh, damage, but uh, but uh, fortunately we were uh, quite quick to recover from the, from these attacks and I, I believe we are uh, uh, due to the, these attacks we are actually better in cyber defense than uh, than many countries I was going to ask you that Estonia ranks as the third most uh, secure country on the global cybersecurity index tell me about the steps that you had to take to get there I think it it all starts from uh, uh, from the mindset that uh, w when it comes to uh, uh, cyber, it's no different than uh, than the real world. In the real world, we consider uh, uh, security and defense as uh, one of the primary uh, features that uh, that any any government or any system, any society uh, has to take care care of. Uh, cyberspace is no different uh, in in that sense. And, uh, and uh, therefore, uh, we've put so much, much emphasis on uh, building up uh, the uh, uh, online services. But while doing that, we, we have considered uh, uh, the security not a, as an add-on, but as a fundamental integral part of, of the systems. So uh, this is one, uh, s the architecture. Uh, secondly, uh, there's been a lot of uh, 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 trust building within the society so that uh, different stakeholders uh, know each other and can operate uh, together. And, and thirdly, uh, uh, no trust, no architecture is uh, good without uh, uh, constant training and uh, uh, constant testing of the systems. And uh, Well, speaking of training, yeah. the uh, Estonian organizations do conduct a lot of cyber training right. and um, exercises. There is a NATO exercise that just wrapped up. Tell us about that. Yes, there, there was the uh, NATO exercise called uh, Cyber Coalition, uh, 
Uh, if I'm not wrong, this is uh, the largest uh, uh, cyber defense exercise in the world. Uh, and uh, and this, is, uh, uh, this has become a, an annual uh, tradition. It's, uh, it's run on uh, Estonian uh, 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 nationally built uh, 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 cyber infrastructure. And, uh, and uh, we believe that uh, this international cooperation uh, in cyber is getting more and more important. Uh, it, it helps us to prepare for any contingencies. And, uh, and uh, I would uh, even, even say that it helps us to prepare avoiding uh, the, those contingencies because we, we know how ca we can rely to, uh, to other stakeholders and uh, what to expect from uh, adversaries. Mr. Ambassador, I wonder what you've learned so far watching this war unfold. What have you learned about Russia? What have you learned about Ukraine? Uh, Russia has uh, grossly uh, miscalculated and uh, uh, mismanaged uh, uh, this, this war. Uh, as uh, the saying goes, they have strategically uh, already lost a uh, long time ago this war. They certainly have underestimated uh, 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 the West, but most importantly, they have underestimated uh, uh, Ukraine and the Ukrainian uh, resilience. Now, uh, uh, when it comes to uh, Ukraine again, uh, they've been uh, proven to be uh, really tough warriors, but they've they've also be, uh, uh, proven to be uh, very uh, flexible and resi resilient as a society, and uh, uh, we believe that uh, uh, democratic, free, resilient societies will always prevail uh, the authoritarian regimes. And that's what I wanted to ask you: What's at the root of Estonia's strong support for Ukraine in this war? Firstly, of course. We want to do the morally right thing. Uh, to see uh, someone uh, suffering uh, uh, like that, uh, it's some, uh, just something that uh, no human being uh, uh, can, uh, ignore, uh, can ignore, ignore. But secondly, and very importantly, we understand very clearly that this uh, war is not just about Ukraine, but this is about uh, the, uh, the future of, uh, of uh, our own, uh, uh, security, uh, freedom, uh, and uh, independence. This is actually uh, something about uh, the uh, the future uh, of the uh, uh, let's say Western uh, lifestyle as we know it. So, uh, uh, however, this uh, uh, conflict uh, uh, ends, this will define the uh, the security uh, structure, the the rules of the game uh, for the decades to come, not only in Europe. But, uh, but we believe also uh, globally. And uh, we so there is so much at stake. Th so this is existential not only for Ukraine, but for us and for, for many other uh, countries. All right, Mr. Ambassador, thanks so much for coming in. Nice to talk to you. Thank you, Mimi. Coming up next on Government Matters, a new report looks at how the federal government is doing at improving the customer experience. One of the authors of the report joins us to discuss the findings. Stay with us. About a year ago, the president issued an executive order calling on agencies to make changes to improve the customer experience for citizens. The Partnership for Public Service spoke to customer experience leaders across the federal government to find out what's working and what needs to be improved. Lauren DeYoung-Shulman is the Vice President of Research, Evaluation and Modernizing Government at the Partnership and one of the authors of the report. Lauren, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for having me. 
the administration has made it a priority to um, reduce, quote, the administrative burden on the American people. Mm -hmm. What does that actually mean? So anytime you deal with government, there's always some challenge that you face in navigating services. That may be, which website do I go to? Or how do I fill out this form? Or is this even a language that I speak literally or figuratively in terms of getting access to those services? Any of those are administrative burden. But it's not just administrative process. It's also the stress that people face when they're trying to get services from the government. Or the learning burden of, do I even know which agency to go to? All of those things make it harder for people to access services and was what the administration committed to getting rid of or trying to reduce in this new executive order. So that's a great vision. What's been the problem of getting that done? So government is not designed for the public. It's designed from the statutes that Congress wrote. It's designed from the preferences of leaders in government. It's designed with uh, problems in mind from 50, 60, even 100 years ago. So all of those things ultimately catch up and create and generate administrative burden for the public. This new executive order tries to think through, if we were designing a government for the people, for the customers that it's intended for, what might that look like? And it gets the policy of what that vision is exactly right, creating simple, seamless, and secure services for the American people. And this isn't a new idea. Other administrations have tried to prioritize this. So what are the root causes here? So I think some of it is what we were talking about before, that so much of government is designed piecemeal in tiny bits and services at a time. So one statute may design one service for veterans, another statute may design another service for disaster relief victims, and another may design uh, for uh, job seekers in some way. Well, all of those individuals may ultimately be the same customer who faces different challenges over the course of their lifetime. But government is designed as though they are all very separate and they're happy to deal with those very separate barriers. And let's face it, they're not. It would be much easier if they were able to combine in some form. The report says that a customer-centric mindset needs to be created. Yes. How do you create a mindset? How do you change a mindset? So the policy of customer experience, the executive order, gets the headlines right. And there's an incredible body of customer experience talent throughout government. But what we haven't done is have a change management strategy through the entire fun functions of government, all enterprise elements of government, whether it be lawyers, or uh, data officers or technologists or procurement officers, all of whom need to have the customer in mind when they are thinking through decisions, when they are designing programs, when they are procuring equipment. All of those things need to become more customer-centric and decisions need to be made with the customer in mind rather than with the bureaucracy in mind. So how would a government agency ensure consistency in, in customer experience? Because different agencies have different track records. So there's a lot of fundamental ingredients that go to that. First of all is data. Instead of treating every customer as a separate entity every time they touch a different part of government, treat them as all as the same person. Be able to share data uh, effectively across different parts of government, inside agencies and across agencies. The second is design, thinking through, make, making sure every time I interact with government or a customer interacts with government, that it looks similarly, that they have a similar understanding of me, that I don't have to learn a new language or a new map anytime I'm touching government. And the third is making sure that every time I interact with government, they're treating me as a person, as opposed to somebody who just happens to be a one-off transaction. All of those things are in the headlines of the customer experience executive order. Now we've got to get them to the finish line. When you say data sharing, that raises concerns of privacy and security. So how do you address that? It's a great question. So 
customers deserve to have their data be protected and secured in any interaction with government. Anytime you hand over data to the federal government, you deserve to know that it's not going places that it shouldn't. There's new technologies and creative ways of using software that allow you to do things like verify income with the IRS without the IRS having to share a tremendous amount of data with you. The Federal Student Aid Office has done this a lot. Other offices have done this a lot to be able to say, yes, I know that you're making this amount of money. You qualify this over here. Then the IRS doesn't have to share that data in full. They can just say they're qualified and the end of story. There's ways to work around some of the privacy concerns that people legitimately have while creating a good customer experience for people. And none of this really happens without the budget to support it. So are you optimistic that this is really going to be funded properly? So I think there's uh, several elements of funding. One is amount. I, if I, I had my wishes, we would have more funding for customer experience. But in addition to that, there's funding flexibilities. People don't experience government in terms of agency statutes or agency appropriations. They experience them in terms of their life. Creating flexibility so that people can, ha or so that agencies can create cross-agency projects that reflect life experiences rather than statute would be one key element of this. Another is passing budgets on time. So many of the things that uh, customers face in their day-to-day -day lives are crises for themselves. If Congress can treat them as such and fund them not on a CR, but with an actual appropriations on time, that's treating the public as it should be. All right, well, Lauren, thanks so much for coming in the program. Thanks so much for having me. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to our latest interviews. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the federal government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges. Stay tuned for an interview with our podcast sponsor, Hughes Network Systems. I'm here with Tony Bardo, Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, welcome. Can you start by just telling me what Hughes does for the federal government? What we do is provide connections. We connect the dots, meaning we use a number of various technologies to connect federal agencies, their locations, their people in ways that are not traditional, uh, meaning that the connections that formed the government networks as we know them today and has, as we've known them for a lot of years have been through dedicated facilities, dedicated network facilities. We have been taking this different approach to connecting all of our customers through the use of broadband, originally satellite broadband, but now managed networks and managed broadband services that include cable, include DSL, include wireless, include uh, traditional fiber and, uh, and, and satellite, of course. Well, tell me about the HughesNet Gen 5, because that's the largest high-speed satellite internet service. It is, it is. It's a very exciting service. We launched it um, back in 2016, and even an earlier version of it, Gen, which was known as Gen 4, that are called high-throughput satellites. And these are satellite services that took satellite connectivity and speed and capability and capacity to a whole nother level. This is a service that we sell to our consumers. We sell it in a more robust fashion to um, our industry partners and customers 
as well as the government. Well, tell me what you're doing for the federal government with relationship to artificial intelligence and machine learning. We use our artificial intelligence capabilities to drive innovation with respect to customer care, customer delivery, the use of understanding what our partners are capable of supplying in terms of broadband uh, services. And we use them to sort of understand in a proactive way, in a, in a speedy way, what could be predictive behavior of the network and use that predictive behavior to monitor the networks and monitor the network services. It takes sort of the guesswork out of it because we use the artificial intelligence to, to give us more information than we would be able to get manually. And I understand, Tony, that you're also working on um, critical network backup and emergency connectivity for first responders. Obviously, that's gonna be more and more of an issue. Can you tell me a little bit about what Hughes does in that arena? Well, we've had a great deal of success in this area, and we've been pleased and, and honored to, to serve the particularly the FEMA community and the emergency response community with rapid deployment of satellite technologies where all of a sudden those technologies because of a disaster are no longer uh, capable of, of connecting people. For instance, in Puerto Rico a few years ago during the hurricanes, we deployed hundreds of satellite services throughout the island, both commercially and in support of FEMA's efforts. And in the absence of terrestrial ground uh, infrastructure that was working, satellite was really critical. All right, well, Tony, thank you so much. Nice chatting with you. Thank you, Mimi, nice chatting with you. Thanks for listening. Our daily show is produced by Catherine Roloff. Our managing director is Jerry Foley. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrix Haddon. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.